0: The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at northsferrychurch.org. Thank you Be seated. And as you're being seated, I just couldn't help but mention that uh, these girls up here are going to the state championship next Saturday for Bird Soccer. Yeah, and... Uh, as my family knows, I'm the best at making all things about me. So what I thought I would point out to you is that I was looking at the field at 11 starters, and I coached eight of the 11 starters. What do you call me every time you see me? Coach Tracy. I just wanted to point that out. It's not about me, though. It's about you. So uh, we're praying for you. Y'all give it your best effort. And whatever happens, happens. We'll love you no matter what. But uh, it was exciting games uh, Friday. Alright, well we're working through the book of Romans and we are up to a uh, probably the most difficult chapter or difficult section of, of Romans 9. And uh, over the last few weeks we've seen Paul uh, writing uh, from the heights of heights and then going down to the depths of despair. In the heights of chapter 8, in verse 1 he says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so the point he's... The crescendo he's reaching is he's been speaking in Romans about how we are all sinners and all in our sin against God and our rejection of God are justifiably condemned in our sin. But the good news is that in Jesus Christ, Christ will take our condemnation for us. And so he says, when he reaches his crescendo in chapter 8 verse 1, Therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Praise the Lord for that. And then he goes on at the end of chapter 8, and we know also that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So he hits this height of praising God for all that He has done for those of us who have trusted in Christ. And then he falls off the cliff to the depths of the valley in chapter 9, where he says, I am grieving in anguish over my Jewish Family, my brothers and sisters who rejected Christ. And in that rejection, in that grief, in that anguish, we saw as he continued to write that he found hope by clinging to the sovereignty of God. That knowing that God is sovereign, what is sovereignty? Well, we know a king is sovereign over his territory. And if you just stop and think for a second that God is the creator of all things, who spoke all things into existence, then that is the essence of sovereign. He is the sovereign one. He is the ruler over all things. And so the sovereign ruler and creator of the universe is not against you. He is for you in Christ. That he wants all the suffering, all the heartache, all the difficulties of this life. He will use them for your good. He says God causes not some things, not just the good things, but God This sovereign ruler of the universe causes every single thing in your life to be for your good and for his glory. God is for you. He's not against you. And if God is for you, then who could be against you? That's where Paul ends in chapter 8. At the heights, he crashes down in chapter 9 saying, My dear brothers and sisters, my fellow Jews, they rejected Christ. And he's broken over. He says, but this does not mean that God's word has failed. And really what we're tempted, when we go through difficulties, when we go through trials, when we go through suffering, when our body fails us, when when we get that diagnosis, when things don't turn out the way we expected them to, when that tragedy happens, whatever you fill in the blank, two things usually happen in us. One, we either question the sovereignty of God or we question the goodness of God. And we say, how is God sovereign and good if this happened? And Paul is saying, don't ever doubt that. God is both sovereign and God is good. You can trust Him. He has good purposes for everything. He wants to bless you in Christ with all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places In Christ, And so Paul last week talked about the fact that God is sovereign. He's clinging to the sovereignty of God like we should cling in the midst of suffering to know that God is going to work all things for good. Paul reaffirmed that God is the sovereign God of the universe, keeping his word to Abraham. Remember, he promised Abraham, he said, I will make you and Sarah have children as countless as the stars. And they were barren, she was barren, and they were old age. But God miraculously provided an answer. He delivered on his promises to them. He said, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. That's referring to Israelites. And then he says, in one of them in particular, one will be the Messiah, the one through whom I'll restore all blessings. So God has been faithfully, sovereignly keeping his promises to Abraham. He's done exactly what he said to do. And what we saw last week, he said it this way. God is saving everyone who trusts in Christ. Even though all those so many Jewish brothers of Paul did not trust Christ, he said God is still sovereign. That's not God's failure. That's not his fault. That's theirs. And he says God is still sovereignly keeping his word. And we worded it another way that God is saving all those whom he foreknew. Those who he foreknew, he also predestined. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he glorified. Paul does not hesitate from going into the mysterious realm of things, into into God's universe, God's... His mind, which is before foundations of the earth ever begin. He foreknew who would be in Christ. And you can decide how you understand that. He is... He is absolutely fore-predestined that everything that he knows good is for them. He will deliver it for those who are in Christ. He says it different ways. From man's perspective, he knew who would trust Christ. From God's perspective, it was those whom he foreknew. You can't separate it. You can't make it simplistic. The point is, God is saving everyone he determined he was going to save. Nobody slips through the fingers of God. God's word does not fail. God does exactly what he intends to do. So God is absolutely sovereign, saving all who are in Christ, but not saving everyone. And that's where we get struggles. We say, well, how can that be right? How can God be good and not save everyone? We aren't universalists. The Bible does not teach that everyone will be saved. The Bible teaches From man's perspective, only those who trust in Christ will be saved. From God's perspective, only those whom God foreknew would be saved. Not everyone will be saved. That needs to be loud and clear today. You are not saved just because you're born into a Christian family. You are not saved just because you live in a supposedly Christian country. God says you are only saved if you put your faith and hope only in Jesus Christ. And what he says is, and that is all because God is sovereign and good. And so what he's going to do today is question the or answer the question of the injustice of God, because when we hear not everyone saved, we wonder, how can God be just? How can that be good? Verse 14, he says very quickly the answer is there is no injustice. With God, and that's what we're going to look at today. How is it? Give me some reasons, Paul. Explain to me how God is not uh, unjust. How is God just in not saving everyone, but saving only those who put their faith in Christ? Or from man's, from God's perspective, by saving only those whom He foreknew. Father, we ask for your help this morning. I pray that your Spirit will move powerfully, that you will give me words to speak. Lord, overcome my shortcomings and bring about clarity. I pray that you will take your word and minister to our hearts. And we will see who you are and who we are in light of who you are. And we'll fall on our face at the foot of the cross, trusting only in your mercy. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. Okay, so Paul's going to give us two reasons. I've been following along. Christopher Ashe, he, he has a commentary and he broke down the book of Romans and said, here's a suggested outline. Why in the world did he make this one so large? I have no idea. Big old text, complicated material, but we're going to try to do our best to go through it. Paul gives us two reasons that the sovereign God of the universe is just and good in his salvation of only those who trust in Christ. Reason number one, God's salvation is an act of mercy. The first reason that Paul gives us, it says that God is just and God is good in his salvation, only of those who trust in Christ, is God's salvation is an act of mercy. I get this from verses 15 and 16. He says, for, verse 15, For he says to Moses, So he's quoting here from Exodus 33, 19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. The first word in that verse, 15, 4, tells you reason. He's making a reason statement here. The reason that God is just in saving only those who trust in Christ, is that His salvation is an act of mercy, not an act of merit. It's not that there's all these people who merited salvation and God only saves some. That's not how it works. It says no one deserves it, no one merits it, but God saving any is an unbelievable act of mercy and grace. He quotes from Exodus 13, uh, 33, verse 19, which says three different times, God is merciful, God is compassionate, God is merciful. Now, where does this quote come from? Like we did last week, where we're going to spend a lot of time looking at the Old Testament context of where Paul's getting these quotes from. And these come from uh, Exodus. And to understand, let's just pick up where we left off last week. God promised to Abraham and Sarah. They were old, she was barren. He said, I'll make your seeds as numerous as the stars. And he delivered on that promise. One of those children was Isaac. That was the first child. That I mean, that was the promised child, Isaac. So God gave him Isaac. Isaac married Rebekah. Rebekah was barren as well. But God miraculously provided, a, delivered on his word. He's sovereign, he's good. And so he provided twins. They had Jacob and Esau. Jacob, God said, he, God chose to extend his covenant promises to Jacob. Jacob's name was changed to Israel. So Jacob's numerous descendants became known as the Israelites. Why? Because that's what God wanted to do. Because God's God. And that's what he decided to do. And he's good. And he's delivering on his promises. Now they became as countless as the stars just as God promised. He sovereignly and graciously protected them from death. If you remember the famine, if you'll read Exodus when you go home, you'll love this stuff. You'll see this is what Paul's reading. Remember there was a famine and so the the seed, the family was going to perish. But We see this unbelievable mixture of man doing all he knows to do, being responsible, and his decisions matter. He's not a puppet. He's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. And behind it, mysteriously, somehow, God is sovereignly working all things according to his purposes, his good purposes. And so his brothers sell him into slavery. Remember, Joseph was sold into slavery. They were jealous. And so he ends up getting mistreated, falsely accused. But lo and behold, he ends up being the right hand man to Pharaoh. And why was he there? Why did God have him there? But to protect them during the famine. So God spares the seed, the descendants of Abraham through the famine by this mysterious providential working of God through Joseph, bringing him to power, the right hand of Pharaoh. But what does is, what is Joseph say to his brothers at the end? He says, you know, everything you meant for evil, God meant it for good. So as you're trying to untangle these knots which, if you think you got it untangled, let me first of all say, no offense, you don't have it untangled. I mean, you're smart people, but there are some really, really smart people who have been, never been able to completely untangle this knot in a satisfactory manner. If you think you've got it untangled, you have to check, have I diminished the sovereignty of God? Have I diminished the responsibility of man? You can't let go of either end of that strain. They are both absolutely t- true and taught in the Word of God. Somehow, in your real decisions, in your real life, your real actions matter, God is sovereignly working all things according to His, His good purposes. And so then we see God protected the seed. He protected the family from famine as Jacob uh, became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. A generation passes, and that Pharaoh dies. And so the next Pharaoh sees these Israelites becoming numerous, a powerful people. And he turns against them. He starts to enslave them because he he's, uh, he's, uh, feels threatened by them. Now let me understand, let, let you, let's understand, Pharaoh here is like Hitler. Pharaoh is trying to eradicate this whole race of people. Pharaoh is not a nice, innocent guy just trying to do good. And here comes God doing these things. No, Pharaoh is a wicked man. And he is oppressing God's people and he is doing everything in his power to oppose the will of God. But God remembers his covenant promises. He's sovereign, he's good, he keeps his word. And so he sovereignly, miraculously raises up Moses. Do you remember that story? He was put in a basket, okay? This is not normal stuff. This is God doing something here. Read the narratives. It's amazing to see God's mysterious work in and through it all. In Exodus 3.19, we read that God tells them this. Listen to God's sovereign knowledge. He says, now listen, the king of Egypt will not permit Israel to go except under compulsion. God knows exactly what's going on. But God says in verse 21, but I will grant you favor. And it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed. That's how the story unfolds. God gets them out of Egypt and they take all their possessions with them. God is sovereign. God is good. He's keeping his promises through the real responsible actions of his people. Pharaoh resists the will of God time after time. These narratives are going to come into play as we look at this passage in Romans Pharaoh is told is said to have hardened his own heart and God is said to harden Pharaoh's heart both are true. In Exodus 7:13 it says yet Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as Moses came and said let God's people go just as the Lord said. Throughout the amazing narrative of God's miraculous display of his own power and his own glory we as readers are constantly updated on Pharaoh's heart. In 7.22, again, the reader is told, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Again, in 8.15, it says, "...but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief," he, didn't, he wasn't glad, "...he hardened his own heart and did not listen to them, as the Lord had said." Finally, after all the plagues, Pharaoh relents, Pharaoh lets them go... And then the Lord tells them, you're going to have to cross this Red Sea. As for me, behold, listen to what God says. As for me, behold, I, God says, will harden the hearts of these Egyptians who are chasing them into the sea, so that they will go in after them, and I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots, and through his horsemen. Now, how did, how did Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen honor God? They didn't stop, bow down, and worship him. He destroyed them in the sea. So God is even honored in his just condemnation of the wicked. That's the point of the Bible, is that all of us are condemned, and rightly so, because we are wicked in our rebellion against God, and God is just in condemning the wicked but God is merciful and gracious and sovereign and good and will will not condemn all who are in Christ. And that is not because I deserve it or because you deserve it. That is because the character of God, He's gracious and merciful. And He says, trust in Christ. Be saved from the coming wrath of God. So the Israelites crossed the sea on dry ground, parted the sea by God. And then the sea crashed down on the Egyptians who were pursuing them, trying to eradicate their entire race, killing them all. After all this was done, listen to what Exodus 14.30 says, the Lord, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians. The people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and his servant Moses. So God used all of Pharaoh's wickedness and the Egyptian army's wickedness and evil, and he wasn't caught off guard. He was, this wasn't a battle between two equal powers. This was God saying... I could wipe you out right now, but I'm going to endure you with patient tolerance because I'm going to use even your wicked deeds for great good. Then Moses goes up to Sinai and gets the Ten Commandments. While they're getting the Ten Commandments, it says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. It's like a split screen on a television show. He's getting that, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Down at the bottom of the mountain, they're worshiping a golden calf. The point is very clear. These people deserve one thing, and that is punishment. At that height of sin, the sin of the golden calf is massively important in your scriptures. At that height or depth of sin, Moses turns to God and said, God, show me who you are. At that point when you've just been tested and tried to the you've just been hurt and someone says show me who you are is this what comes out of your mouth i will have mercy on whom i have mercy i will have compassion on whom i will have compassion when When God looked down at their wickedness and Moses turned to God and said, Show me who you are. Paul quotes what he said. I am a God of mercy. I am sovereign in my mercy, but I am a God of mercy, compassion, mercy. So then salvation does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but salvation depends upon a God who has mercy. That is the only hope that any one of us has for salvation. It is not because we merit it. It is because God is merciful. And that's Paul's very point. It's very clear. How does God describe himself at Israel's worst sin? God is profoundly merciful. So God's grace to sinful Israel and sinful humanity is only because God is merciful and compassionate. How can God be good and save only those who are in Christ? Because He's merciful to save any. As Paul has made abundantly clear in Romans, all of us are sinful and deserve condemnation. The fact that any of us are saved by faith in Christ is an act of God's great compassion and God's great mercy. As Tim Keller points out, mercy by definition is getting some benefit not deserved. He uses the illustration of of a man giving a thousand full rides to college, just choosing a thousand students and saying, here, I'm going to pay, I'm going to give you a full ride to college. How insane would it be for someone else to look upon that and say, well, that's just not right. How could you do that and not do it for everyone? It's a contradiction to say that mercy is unjust because it's not something deserved. It's something undeserved. That's the way God's salvation is. None of us deserves it. So the fact that he saves everyone who puts their faith in Christ is an incredible gift of God's mercy. And how dare us stand back and question God for only saving those in Christ. God is just in saving those who are in Christ. If you want to put it from Romans 8's terminology, God is just in saving only those whom He foreknew. He is just because salvation is a gift of mercy. After God, after Moses said, God, I want to know who you are, In Exodus 34, if you're writing down, write down Exodus 34, 6 and 7. It's a great passage to clean. The the Scriptures carry this passage all throughout your Bible. This is who God is. This is His character. Moses had to hide in the cleft of a rock as God passed before him to reveal Himself to him. And this is what God revealed. It says, then the Lord passed in front of him and He proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, gracious, Slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. That's who God is. He's merciful. He's gracious, he's long-suffering, he's compassionate, but he's no fool. He will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. So for God's sake, let Jesus take your punishment. For there is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. In the remaining verses, we see Paul's second point. First of all, God is just and God is good and sovereignly saving only those who are in Christ because salvation itself is an act of mercy. Second of all, he says God is just and God is good because... God even uses evil for his good purposes. And that's what we're going to see in the rest of the passage, that God is using evil for good. Look at verse 17. It says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, we've read Exodus, we've reviewed Exodus, and now we've got the context in our mind, and so we understand this quote. The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. This quote is from Exodus 9 16, right in the middle of all the plague narratives. Plague after plague after plague, Pharaoh refuses to relent. He refuses to submit himself to God. He refuses, he stiffens his neck, and he sticks his hand in the face of God. And God endures with great patience this this wicked man. This is not a battle of two equal forces. God is just patiently enduring his wickedness. Why? Why? So that he might use that wickedness to display the glory of God to the nations. And the chief end of man is to behold the glory of God. That is the greatest gift God can do. Is to show you his glory. So he endures this wicked Pharaoh. Because he knows in this interchange, I'm going to show you my glory. Paul summarizes this in verse 18, saying, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, he hardens whom he desires. This is not some random arbitrarily closes eyes and harden in mercy. God is working in his perfect plan. It's important to remember that God is not hardening some good guy who just wanted to believe in Jesus. God is hardening a hardened man who is rejecting God at every turn. That does not thwart the plans of God, I promise you. God says, I'll use even that to display my glory. Pharaoh, wicked man, he's like Hitler. He's enslaved a whole race of people and he wants to exterminate them. In Romans 1, Paul says... We're all just like Pharaoh. In verse 19, Paul raises the question that he knows the human heart asks when confronted with the sovereignty of God. When you hear God is sovereign, do you not say this in your own mind? He says in verse 19, Will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists His will? When we're confronted with the massive sovereignty of God, this is exactly the question we wrestle with. We say to ourselves, well, if God is sovereign, then how can man be responsible? Our little minds just cannot reconcile the two. But the Bible makes it clear that both are true. God is sovereign and you and I are absolutely responsible for everything we say and do. Man is responsible for their sin, not God. We must never blame God for man's sin. We must never blame God for man's rejection of Jesus. We must never blame God for man's condemnation. God is certainly sovereign over it and is merciful to even use it all for his good purposes. But God is not to be blamed for man's sin or man's evil or man's condemnation. Man gets the blame. God gets the glory for saving through Jesus Christ. And In verse 20, Paul hits deep at the root source of the question, which is human pride. Paul brings us down a notch and he says, On the contrary... Who are you who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Here Paul answers the why question with a who question. The why question being, why does he still find fault? Paul responds with a who question. Who are you to ask God anything? This is exactly what Job happens in the book of Job. In Job, we're given insight into the secrets of God behind the scene. God created Job, and God allowed Job to go through all kinds of torment to the point where Job in 10.18 says to God, Why was I even born? The why question to which God responds with a who question. Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge now where were you when i laid the foundation of the earth that's what god says when we say well how could this be fair he says now where were you when i made the earth really really you're going to question me you wouldn't even exist, God says, if I hadn't spoke you into existence. Every breath you have is a gift of my grace. Are you really in a position to question me? And to make this point, Paul uses the potter and the clay analogy. Just as the potter is sovereign over the clay, God is sovereign over his creatures. You, O oh man, are not God, and are in no place to exalt yourself into a position of questioning God. God is the creator. He is sovereign, and praise God, He's good. Be terrified to imagine a sovereign God who's not good. So God is not unfair to show mercy only to those who are in Christ. Next, in verse 22, Paul summarizes this point. He brings it to a summary. He says, "Well, what if God, although unwilling excuse me, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath? What if this is what's going on? What if God willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy which He prepared beforehand for glory. What I believe Paul is saying here is that God knows everything before the foundations of the earth were ever even created. God knows who will be saved. Those are ma- vessels of mercy. And God knows who will be condemned. Those are vessels of wrath. The fact that anyone will be saved is an unbelievable act of God's mercy in Christ. And the fact that God tolerates the sin of unbelievers is also an unbelievable act of God's mercy And finally, the fact that God uses their sin and their unbelief to make His riches of His glory known to the nations is more mercy and grace. Finally, Paul explains specifically how God is doing this in the Jews' unbelief, how He's using the unbelief the massive unbelief of the very seed of Abraham, plural, the Israelites, how he uses that for good. He says in verse 24, how? This also answers, has God's word failed? No. He's going to tell us in these verses, God used the unbelief of the Jews to reach the Gentiles. And then he's going to use the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous to reach the Jews. God is sovereign and God is good. He says, "...even us whom He has called, whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles." And now he's going to quote from Old Testament prophets making the point God is keeping His word. Verse 25, "...as He says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not My people, My people. And her who was not beloved, beloved." And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Then he quotes Isaiah in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant. There is a small number of, of Israel that would be saved and preserved by God for His plans and purposes Verse 28, For the Lord will execute His word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. If it weren't for God's mercy, we would all be wiped out like Sodom and Gomorrah. So Paul quotes these Old Testament prophets Hosea and Isaiah to make his point that God is sovereign and God is good to use even evil and unbelief to extend His salvation, grace, and mercy to others. Just as He chose to make a people out of Israel, He is also using Israel's unbelief to make a people out of the Gentiles, And he will use the Gentiles to bring in a massive number of Israel one day. Has God's word failed? (laughs) Absolutely not. He's sovereign. And he is so good. Because everything he is doing is to bring about merciful salvation through the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Have you trusted? Are you trusting only in Jesus? Everything God's been doing has been for that purpose. From man's perspective, only those who are in Christ have no condemnation, will be Glorified one day. From God's perspective, those whom He foreknew, He also predestined that they will be called, they will be justified, they will be glorified. All you've got to know is this Do you want to trust in Christ? Trust Christ today. Right now. Just right now in your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. God, I know that you've promised to forgive based only on the blood of Jesus Christ. Please give me forgiveness right now. Pray that in your heart. Trust Christ, for there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, I pray that people all over the room prayed, and I pray that they genuinely, sincerely want to entrust themselves to Christ, that what He did on the cross was to take the condemnation that they deserve and that they will understand that You are working for their good. Lord, may no one leave here today without seriously considering their stance before a sovereign God of the universe. May we not pridefully exalt ourselves to call God into question, but may we understand that the God of the universe has graciously provided a means of salvation despite our rebellion against Him. And that every single person on the planet, every single person in this room is on the exact same grounds None of us is any better or worse. We all need the forgiveness of God through Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will save people this morning. As we stand and sing this song, I want you to think about your walk with the Lord and I want you to think about whether you need to make decisions to do business with God. Don't just come in and leave and, and pretend everything's good. Do business with the Lord as we sing this song. Stand with us now. Afterwards, I want to hear from you. I want to hear what's going on. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church, located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at NorrisFerryChurch.org.